Acts uh, 17. Some of you know that I've been gone for a great deal this summer, and while I was gone, uh, not only have the sermons gotten longer, um, which we will stop that practice this morning, um, but also they began a series looking at the sermons uh, given in the book of Acts. A stark contrast, these sermons are very short, uh, probably a summary of what they actually preach, unlike the sermons that you've been hearing for weeks on end now. Um, so I'm going to look at Acts 17. This is a really important passage, um, not just looking at the sermons from the book of Acts, but even more importantly, even for the early church, framing the church's practice, uh, framing what we're to be as a church, actually. Uh, look with me as I read from Acts 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with, the inscription, with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver, or stone, an image made by human design and skill. For in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, at that Paul left the council. Some of the people came, became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Diamond, a member of the Areopagus, a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this sermon from your servant Paul, and we pray uh, that you would be with us today as we look into this portion of a letter written long ago, summary written long ago, and yet we ask that your spirit would be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You probably wouldn't be surprised, but maybe you would, the acres of writings about this particular chapter in the book of Acts. Uh, there have been acres of the rainforest decimated 
uh, by people commenting on this particular passage. Philosophers are interested in the way Paul engages the intellectuals of his day. So they look at this through that lens as this is a sort of philosophical dialogue from the Apostle Paul. It's also interesting to see that this letter, or this sermon at least, has been used at least through the first first few centuries of Christianity, and it really transformed the community. The questions that were being asked, at least that Paul is addressing, are really questions that many of us are asking today. Questions about evil, materialism, uh, determinism. The philosophies of Paul's day addressed all of those issues and tried to answer the question of why are we here and what are we supposed to do. Paul moves into this community, which is the first time that we've seen him do this, actually in the book of Acts. He's addressed uh, religious people. He's addressed the Jewish communities. And now suddenly he's moving into a different sphere uh, is the best description. When we come to this question, we really want to know what possessed Paul to actually move into the marketplace. Why couldn't he just leave well enough alone? Um, Paul or Luke gives us really three good reasons why Paul is driven to do this uh, in this particular context. First, it's just simply that Paul is following Jesus is the best description I can give of this. It's found in Paul's conversion story Jesus announces actually why he chose Paul to begin with. This is what he said. Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Here what we find is that Paul is actually following his Savior's command into the Gentile city of Athens. we told that he ended up in Athens really not by his own choosing, But instead, his life was threatened in the city that he was in before, and he was urged to flee, and he ended up actually in Athens is the best description of it. It wasn't by choice. It wasn't even sort of a a plan of his or even a forethought of his. He ended up here quite by accident, or so it seems. Athens was the cradle of democracy, and here we find Paul in this very place. What it is up what we discover here is that this proves to be really fertile ground for Paul. Athens was the home to Socrates, Plato and Aristotle. It was the intellectual city of Paul's day. Architecturally, Athens had no rivals in the ancient world. And Paul arrives there, and there's much for him to see and do. You just think about everything that he had been through, actually, up to this point in time. He was on what some have described his second missionary journey He had walked over a 1,000 miles by this point in time. Just to sort of catch you up on his life story, by this particular chapter, at least in the last two years, we learned that he had been beaten, he'd been imprisoned, and driven out of three cities previously under threat of death. Now, Paul arrives in this world-class city. Um, He's supposed to be safe among his friends. Any career counselor worked their weight would tell him that he needs to get some rest, that now's a chance for him to recharge his batteries, um, that he can have a little me time in this world-class city, see the sights, enjoy himself. There's much to be done there. But instead, what you find is Paul has a completely different agenda. Um, He begins to preach in the synagogue. He begins to talk about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, not just in the synagogue, 
but in the marketplace and then ultimately in the Areopagus. Just so you'll know, this is not sort of an, in, uh, an innocent sort of engagement that Paul is embarking on. Socrates was found guilty in this very spot for advocating new gods and was put to death. Uh, this is a trial that Paul is going through now. Another threat against his life, another threat against his existence. What you find is that Paul's agenda is not set by me time, is the best description. He has a king who's setting his agenda, who takes him to this place unexpectedly, and yet Paul has a mission there. In Acts 20, I do not account my life of any value or precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify about his gospel of grace. See, Paul's agenda is set by another. Now, what does this have to do with us, and why are we even looking at this? We just have to admit that Paul has a unique job and that no single person is actually called to follow in his footsteps exactly. What this means is this. I, I'm not expecting you, nor is this text calling you, to go to the flea market this afternoon and preach or to proclaim like Paul did. But it is instructive, at least, that you begin to see what is driving him. Because in Matthew 28, this command is given not just to Paul, but to anyone, actually, that knows him. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That command is true in all times and all places. In other words, being a follower of Jesus is not an extracurricular activity. It doesn't mean that you can't go on vacation or, or that you have to spend your whole time there teaching. But what it does mean is that you never can take a break if you're a Christian from the Christian life. There is no such thing as a vacation from that. Third, if you're not a Christian this morning, don't be surprised if you run across Christians that talk about their faith. If they didn't, they wouldn't be serving their king. It doesn't mean that they can be rude. It's not like a passport that they can treat you however you want. We'll get more than that in just a minute. Paul is sharing his faith here talking about the person of Jesus, I want you to notice he really doesn't talk about himself at all. He doesn't sort of display his own history even. Instead, he's got a different focus. It's not just that he's following in his Savior's steps. He's following Jesus. It's the respect that Paul shows here that is even more troubling for many of us. His respect for the people of Athens is just obvious. If Paul was acting just out of obligation, he could have made a visit to the synagogue, gotten to a couple of sparring matches in the marketplace, and then head off to wait for his buddies at the beach. But instead what you find, Paul, Luke is saying that Paul is doing this every day. Just as an aside, you know, nobody is checking up on Paul either. It's not like he's got somebody who's looking over his shoulder, checking on what he's doing, supervising his plans, uh, He's got no friends to impress in Athens, actually. He gets to choose what he does with his free time. So what you see here is he's motivated by more than obligation. What's stunning is the way that he respects the people that he's engaging. His preaching or his discussions about the resurrection had caused quite a stir in the city. The reason for that is simply this. The Greeks didn't believe in the resurrection. So they insulted him. They called him a babbler, uh, is their description. 
They accused him of advocating foreign gods into their city. A serious, lethal charge, actually. Paul is taken by force to the Areopagus where he's going to have to testify before the city council. The council here is in charge of keeping order in the city, especially with new religions that were incoming. In short, they were the ones that would decide whether a god could exist or not in Athens. I know that sounds odd, but that was their job. Instead of Paul responding in like kind, Paul begins by showing that he's very intimately familiar with the city. He's actually even more than just intimately familiar with the city. He actually knows their gods. He knows their religious impulses. He knows their heartbeat, so to speak. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. As I walked through your city, I even found an altar to an unknown god. The ancients were known to erect altars as a way to hedge their bets against misfortune, just in case they missed one. Uh, that would be the, the way that they understood it. This is sort of like Homer Simpson when he says, Jesus, Allah, Buddha, save me. Um, Paul commends their religiosity, their religious devotion in every way. It's evident, and he affirms it, so to speak. He shows that he's familiar with their philosophers. He even quotes their authors in their literature. And the flow of his argument, even though it's not obvious to us, is really a dialogue with the Epicureans of his day. That's exactly how they would have argued. In other words, he knew the way that they addressed one another. It's not by accident that you see the way that Paul addresses them and speaks to them. He doesn't sort of condescend to them. He doesn't mistreat them. He's not arrogant about uh, his discussion with them. Instead, he engages them right where they are. He knows them. He knows what makes them tick. He knows their culture. He's fully aware of everything that's going on in Athens. Just the way that Paul engages them, there's so much that we can understand and learn from this. His careful understanding of his culture. He wasn't content to sort of preach the gospel to people he didn't know. These were men and women, as Paul enrolls, that were created in God's image. He spends much of his time investigating their city, reading their literature. He wants to know what makes them tick. If you're a Christian this morning, do you have that sort of kind of orientation to your culture? Do you investigate it? Do you know what makes it tick? Do you understand it? Have you read, are you engaged at any level with it? Or instead, are we just completely out of step with the way Paul engages his world? Do you read the influential, the popular books? Do you watch the important movies? Do you actually have a dialogue with your neighbors? Do you know them? Do you know their concerns? Do you know what makes them tick? N.T. Wright identifies four elements in our Western culture. Culture. He says it basically has these sort of elements to it. Justice, spirituality, relationships, and beauty. He says that those are echoes of God's voice in our world. You can't read this sermon, you can't read this chapter and come away with anything than Paul's undeniable respect for the people that he's serving. 
if we had this sort of orientation, I'll tell you, we'd have better conversations and better friendships with those that we engage with, with the people around us. But I want you to see that his respect for the Athenians is not his ultimate concern in, in this passage. Uh, just look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Paul is provoked by what he sees, by what he knows is going on. There were more gods, one writer said, in Athens than in all the rest of the country. And the Roman satirist hardly exaggerates when he says that it was easier to find a god there than a man. But what you see in Paul is he's not impressed by gold or silver or marble or ivory. Instead, what you find is it moves him. He's provoked, the writer says. That's much different than just being angry about it or being disgusted. Um, instead, Paul is hes hurt, wounded would be a better description of this. It's used elsewhere in the Bible, is, and that sort of the, captures the idea. He's heartbroken over what he sees. Every commentator describes this as God's reaction to idols. When the Israelites made a golden calf, God was provoked. When they worshipped Baal, God was provoked. He once described his own people, Israel, as a rebellious people who provoked me to my face continuously. God is jealous for his own honor, his own reputation. And whenever someone enters a picture who doesn't belong, he's provoked. He's heartbroken over that invasion into his relationship. It's the same way of an anger uh, toward a cheating spouse. Why does Paul feel this way? Well, just you have to know his story. He's come face to face with the resurrected Jesus. He's met the God of the universe on the road to Damascus and knows that everything else that claims our allegiance is an imposter, is a fraud, is a homewrecker, would be the best way to describe it. Why is he provoked? Because the Athenians, who were made in God's image, made to love and honor him, what he sees is that they're enslaved to the images of Jupiter, Venus, Apollo, and Zeus. They're investing themselves in something that could never bring life, never bring joy, never bring healing, a life subject to just frustration after frustration. Because the reality is we become what we worship. Notice Paul's response. He respects the Athenians and he's jealous to guard the honor of God. He's boldly setting the record straight. He undermines the Stoics and the Epicureans. First, God is the creator of the universe. And to think he can be bound by a temple is just patently absurd. God is the sustainer of life to think that he needs our sacrifices, that we can domesticate him and get him to serve us is equally ridiculous. And if that were not enough, Paul doubles down. Third, he's the ruler of all mankind, and he intends that all should seek him. And yet he's incredibly patient, wanting, longing for everyone to come to him to know him. And lastly, Paul says he's the judge of all men, not this puny Athenian council that they've called him before. He has determined a day when he will set all the wrongs right. Everything that's crooked will be made straight. 
everything that's dark will be brought to light. Paul is motivated, driven here by a sense of duty. That's true. He's also driven by this deep respect and love and admiration that he has for the Athenians. That's true too. But ultimately, Paul is driven, consumed by his zeal for Jesus Christ. That's what drives him. That's what motivates him. That's why he doesn't take a break. Uh, He doesn't go on vacation in Athens. Instead, what you find is that Paul's at work, um, at least in my description of what he's doing. He's working. If you're a Christian this morning, do those things capture you? Are you driven by a zeal? Are you heartbroken over the culture, the world, the community that you see, over your neighbors? Instead, do you respond with sort of an arrogant condescension, really an abusiveness uh, is the best way to describe it, Um, manipulating relationships instead of treasuring them? Look at Paul. Look at how he responds to his world, his culture. May God, by his grace, give us the ability as a church to love our community. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy that you call us as your people to follow you. For many of us, it's hard to be a witness to you because our lives simply do not reflect any measure of grace at all. And yet we pray this morning that you would change us. That you would overwhelm us by your grace and mercy. That we would joyfully, willingly follow you. That in the places where we have disrespected, dishonored our neighbors, our friends, the people around us, even our own culture, Father, that you would grant us a deepening sorrow. That you would break us that we might serve you with joy, that many would come to know you and love you through our efforts, even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.